0: Hi, folks, this is Sadia Yaqub, and you're listening to History Speaks on the Maidan podcast. I want to begin our episode today with a story about a woman jurist from the 14th century by the name of Fatima bint Abbas, more popularly known as Fatima al-Baghdadiyah. Fatima al-Baghdadiyah is widely acknowledged in different biographical accounts as an accomplished preacher and jurist who also issued legal opinions. Uh, She was a contemporary of the very well-known Ibn Taymiyyah and almost all the biographical entries that I collected about her make mention of his tremendous respect for her. In fact, it is reported um, that whenever Ibn Taymiyyah heard that Fatima al-Baghdadiya would be present at one of his study circles, he would anxiously prepare for the session because he was often outwitted by her in their exchanges on matters of law. Of the many different biographical entries that I collected on Fatima al-Baghdadiya, What I noticed was almost all entries had a similarly brief sketch of her life and not much more information. But in one entry, there is fleeting mention of an exchange between her and another male jurist on the issue of menstruation. The entry notes that in this debate, she convinced him of her position and then proclaimed, your knowledge of this matter is only theoretical, whereas I know it theoretically and experientially. When I first read this account, I was simply struck by the power of her voice and presence and her claim that her legal reasoning was more sound because she was thinking through her experiences as a menstruating person. But I could not find much more about this debate. What was the particular topic that they disagreed on? What was her position? Did it eventually find its way into authoritative opinions of her legal school? None of this is something that I could really make out from the very limited sources that I had available. The limits of what a source tells you is a problem that, is to, that historians often have to deal with. For those historians working on the marginalized and underprivileged in society, trying to recover their voices, to get some sense of their lives, their understanding of their place in society is even more challenging. In this episode, I'll be speaking to two scholars, Pernilla Merna and Laurie Silvers, who ask precisely these questions in their work. I speak first with Pernilla Merna about her work on elite enslaved courtesans in the Abbasid period and the ways in which they navigated and negotiated their situations. I then speak with Laurie Silvers about her series of historical mysteries, also on the Abbasid period, that bring together history and the imaginative as a space for giving voice to the silenced.
1: I, I, in the Abbasid context, when we talked about the Jaweri, the, the they are really we uh, re- really refer to high society uh, courtesans often, but they could also be uh, domestic slaves, uh, often in urban settings. So um, uh, the jawaria in history, uh, they they could be they they, they are really marginalized really, uh, but the jawari in Abbasid society. They have a voice. Uh, they are actually um, one one of the groups of women, one of the social groups that have been mentioned in the, in, in in literature. So the, the Jaria, uh, the name Jaria actually means girl, uh, or is one of the name for girls. So slave girl is uh, how it is often translated. But uh, Jaria could uh, well. Actually, it could be any kind of uh, female slave. We don't see any consistency in how to mm-hmm. refer to slaves, but most of the time it's um, a concubi- concubine or courtesan. Uh, it could also be any domestic slave uh, or companions to or slave companion or um, working in not only domestic settings, but also in other settings. Uh, But when we talk about the Abbasid society, uh, the Djawari, when we talk about the Djawari, we often refer to a high society elite uh, group of courtesans. And also that we have to remember that the courtesans or Djawari, they had high status uh, in their context. Uh, and sometimes they refer to the pride especially Koyan, the singers but the singers were also uh slave enslaved they were enslaved but they had high status and uh they had their own pride pride do you say that yeah and uh they don't see themselves as uh, like all prost- uh sex workers or uh they really want to differentiate the, themselves from, you know, uh, the El Ama or common people. They belong to the elite. F- f- I I I would like to say something about what we know about the Jawari, because what we actually know about the Jawari uh, is told by male authors. Uh, and many of them were friends. And this is so fascinating in the Abbasid society, in the literature. Uh, that this group of women are portrayed often by men who uh, socialized with them. Some of them were their friends. Some of them just met them af- at uh, different gatherings. And uh, so, so, so they are like, I, I will, somehow the Abbasid literature is like a homosocial social. Uh, environment when where men talk to each other about these
0: women you know it's really interesting this thing that you're bringing up about the homosociality of those spaces, but at the same time, what you're seeing in the literature is that these men were um <clears throat> you know that these men were relating to the the jawadi in different spaces uh you know they might be friends with them, they might be coming across them in in different spaces, so it seems like there's a certain kind of homosociality uh, but there are uh you know women in these male spaces they're just not free women
1: yes, uh but I also st- see something else uh and I think that um, there is also a certain amount of admiration of these women interesting because they have they have something, and this is when we start start to talk about agency um they use, they got a chance, they, they get a chance to use the agency. They get a chance to to, to change the life situation. And when they take this cha- chance, um, they do it by using the resources they have, which is uh, the uh, eloquency. And, uh, you know, the quick answer to take adva- to, to advantage of the situation. Uh, and you know, turn the situation to their favor. Uh, So um, so somehow, um, I think that these women were were admired in their lifetime, but uh, they were not seen as important, you know, um, historical actors. So what we see, the, the kind of literature we have, uh, referring to them, um, use them for entertainment, for making jokes and you know, chatting with each other about these, oh, wow, extraordinary women. So uh, that we have to be very careful when we read this literature and try to go beyond this. Um, and not only prejudices of the sources, but also prejudices of uh, uh, later interpretations of these sources. So um,
0: could you say a little bit more about that in terms of uh, what you see as both the prejudices in the sources, but also of the later uh, works or the secondary literature that's interpreted these sources?
1: I would say that uh, they are not only uh, mentioned in a negative way. It depends on the author. So, um, uh, but they are often, because Mm -hmm. they are, well, they're often connected to, um, you know, free sexuality. They are available as women, but in in, in actual fact, they are not, because these courtesans are not, they're they're not prostitutes, but they act as prostitutes. Uh, They are, but uh, so they have often been interpreted as being like prostitutes, but they are not because they can choose which men to be with or not be with. I think because of their role as being you know somehow available women uh contrary to free women who were not uh they uh authors and uh, narrators have felt free to use them. Um, to um, as bad examples of, uh, um, I mean, I, I, and, and this is actually this is not typical for a society. I mean, it's an age-long uh, prejudice about women who uh, have um, active uh, an, an active sexual life and talk freely about sexuality and other uh, <laughs> subjects uh that well they have um it's it's a very old motif in 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 poetry in, in pre-islamic arabic poetry for example uh the the the, the false and um uh, what do you say um unloyal uh, singing girl or uh know this kind of free woman who you can't rely on you they will they are never sincere in their love etc and they only want uh, your money so this is an old motif, and I don't think it not only in Arabic uh, literature but in other literatures as well uh, right. I mean
0: certainly we still have this conversation today I mean the whole sort of critique of slut shaming is precisely this point that you know we that women uh, tend to be seen in this I mean, the interesting thing yeah, that you're, exactly. uh, and you're describing in the Abbasid context and the ways in which, you know, the, uh, the Jaria is seen is that, uh, you know, that, that kind of sexual availability uh, of the enslaved woman is created by those very men who are then criticizing them for being uh, sexually available, right? I mean, it's like these people, these women were enslaved uh, and then trained to, you know, uh, uh, occupy these positions as, cu- as courtesans uh, and then are being criticized for uh, you know, basically being uh, sexually available in those ways. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's just so jarring to kind of see that juxtaposition.
1: Yes, they have been used in so many ways. Uh, and, and I think this uh, critique is also part of an attempt to keep, I mean, bluntly, to keep free women in place don't be like these women, and that's that's the meaning of slut shaming huh right. uh or slut shaming i'm sorry uh that certain women are bad, don't be like them because if you are like them, you will also be <laughs> you know sub- uh subjected to this kind of uh rumors and um right. mm.
0: exactly i i was wondering if you could maybe uh tell us a little bit about um you know, how you came to thinking about uh, the agency of the Jaria uh, and, uh, you know, stepping away from the these tropes about them that you see in the literature. What were, maybe, the, you know, was there something uh, that really struck you uh, that made you realize, uh, you know, that you needed to take a kind of a critical distance from the source or uh, basically like, how did you kind of arrive at this place of being able to read these sources, not at their face value, but to read sort of um, beyond what was uh, most obvious, to try to recover the agency of the jadia
1: In one way, uh, this kind of literature helped me, because uh, um, early Arabic, adab, uh, as it's called, or... Um, the Abbasid Adab, uh, the anecdotes, full of anecdotes and poems, is in itself very contradictory. So you f- you find these contradictory um, reports about these women and what they were doing. But um, I can't say that there is one thing that made me um, uh, come to this kind of... Uh, Use this kind of method. is only that I, from the beginning, I, I realized that, um, put it like this, um, I, I'm a literary historian, and um, I started to my PhD is on classical Arabic literature. But I've always been interested in how to use this literature as uh, for social history. No. So, come to, come, one kind of, what can this um, can we go beyond literature to see what really happened? And well, we can never know exactly what happened and we can never come to an exact truth about something. But um, we have, I want to go as far as possible to kind of uncover uh, the real life of uh, these women. Although we can't go all the way, we can do as much as possible.
0: I mean, I think one of the things that I really appreciated about, uh, you know, your work and and reading some of your work on, on the Jadia is the, you know, is, is the way in which I mean, because this is always a challenge of the historian is how do you take the sources that, you know, we do have available, which we recognize are often written by elite members of society. Uh, and so it's if you if what you're interested in as a historian is how did the people who are not a part of this elite circles live, or they might've been a part of these elite circles, but were not themselves um, uh, the kind of, uh, you know, um, holders of power in these spaces. How do you recover uh, what their lives were like? How were they living? How were they perceiving, uh, you know, the society that they lived in and their place in it? Uh, And so I really appreciated the way in which you're trying to push us to think about, Um, both literature as a source of social history but also moving beyond the the tropes sort of you know instead like reading those tropes as doing a certain kind of work through which you can then recover uh you know what these women were trying to do so you know at, at some level the the trope of these women as being disloyal and uh you know not really ever caring about you, but only just, you know, wanting to go after your money. I appreciate that, you know, you were trying to show us that this is a way in which the Jawari, like, exercise their agency to better Mm -hmm. their situation.
1: Yeah, you have, for example, one thing that I've uh, found uh, where you read everywhere, actually, in this kind of adept uh, anthologies, the jokes about um, slave girls uh, being presented for a the caliph or another elite man who wants to buy, uh, perhaps wants to buy her. And um, she takes this opportunity. uh, The the, the joke is often, you know, she says something, you know, sexualized or something like that and makes him want to buy her. Uh, And this is a joke. And the the, the name of the slave uh, women uh, differ and also the name of the potential buyers, but there's so many of these kind of jokes that it was very popular. It seems to have been very popular. So, what what can it say? What can it tell us about these women's lives? Actually, nothing about the uh, individual women. But it tells us that the purchase uh, was extremely important for these women. They could, I mean, they they could move socially. But they had to be bought by someone, but they could you know, they could use the little agency they had in order to be bought by uh, a person they wanted to be bought by. <laughs> I mean, they could change the living conditions by uh, coming from a more um, modest household to a, to a more uh, prominent family, for example.
0: Right and that might give them much greater access to uh you know to to a certain kind of status in in you know in society i mean and I think in some ways you know the argument that sh- that you make about agency and how to think about their agency uh reminded me of sabah Mahmoud's work you know where she's- crit- critiquing liberal feminist notions of agency that tend to want to look for resistance um you know and what you're what you're kind of describing is um and an an exercise of their agency that was trying to, uh, you know, see the situation that they're in and, uh, you know, create further opportunities for themselves given the situation that they're already in. Uh, And, you know, it's important to be able to recognize that that was a mode of agency that they were, that they were exercising.
1: Yeah. I think that's the way with, for, for most historical subjects that, okay, but uh, they would First and foremost, they want to to improve their own living conditions (laughs) and resistance wouldn't get them very far.
0: Right, right. Exactly. I mean, it's a system that's entirely uh, out of your control, especially for enslaved people, uh, you know, in this context. There's uh, even after emancipation at some level, you are still tied to the to the individual that enslaved you through, you know, this sort of um, system of a patron. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit. I I, I love uh, you know the, the way in which you describe the um, you know if we can call it the the sort of slut shaming of the jaria as a way of controlling free women. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the relationship between the jaria and the free woman.
1: I think, uh, and this is valid for all. For, for a long historical period that uh, most slaves were women and most slave women uh, w- uh worked in, or in a domestic setting so 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 so, so they were living together uh, and being very close to women so what we see and this is how um uh the, the, the kind of literature we have distort our vision of these uh, women because uh, the literature the authors are men and they talk to they write the readers the um, the readers are expected to be men uh, and they describe their meetings with uh, with these women so you get the impression that uh, <laughs> these women were meeting men all the time because that's the only picture we get from literature. Uh, all anecdotes about a man's meeting or, or some, uh, several men's meeting with uh, a, a slave woman or a, a geria. And she says something uh, and, and they report it back to other men. But most of the t- time, I think that uh, they were lived and uh, were together with other women uh, and free women and other slave women. So uh, it must have been quite difficult to differentiate between them. Of course, uh, um, the harems so or the, um, the, 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 the women's part of the, the houses have their own um, uh, hierarchies. But we also see examples of real friendship between uh, enslaved and free women and also one interesting interesting thing is that we can if we see examples of how um the the diwari were trained in families uh, you have a kind of uh, jaria called the Mualada, who was born in born in the house and uh, she was Uh, brought up by the family, that is by the women in the family most of the time, uh, probably. And she Mm. was also taught singing. We have uh, some examples where it's explicitly stated that um, slave singers were taught music by the women in the family. Uh, So they were brought up with the the children and, and lived together with the women in the families. Women were slave owners. They owned slaves, and they so it was, uh, and they and and they bought and buys, um, uh, bought and sold slaves, and there are many examples of that. So yeah, uh,
0: yeah. I mean, it, I I was really interested in you know, uh, some of the these sort of, um, you know, where you talk about in your work the investment that free women had in enslavement as an institution. I feel like this is something that, you know, oftentimes we don't really think about. I, uh, You know, th- what strikes me is the work of um, uh, Stephanie Jones Rogers, who's a, a historian writing about the uh, the American South and, and white Southern women uh, as slave owners. And part of what she's arguing in her work is that, you know, white Southern women were invested in slavery because it actually allowed them to acquire a certain amount of power and economic privilege in society. And it seems to me that some of what you're seeing and talking about in your work is similar, that there's an investment, that there's, a, there's some amount of agency that free women were able to exercise mm. through their investment in the slave trade.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And also um, in this case, in Abbasid society, and we're talking about the, uh, elite urban society now, uh, women were supposed to not uh going out outside <laughs> and uh they were supposed to uh, uh, stay indoors uh but they could send their uh, closest slave companions to do errands for them and also pick up gossip i guess so uh, i guess they were also depending on their slave companions to uh, to be there what do you say Extended art. Right,
0: yeah. I mean, it's interesting how, you know, in, in that particular context of the Abbasid period, but certainly this continues uh, until much later, the restriction on your mobility is actually a sign of an elevated social status, uh, you know, but, but it does constrain you. And so then you do need individuals who are not restricted in the same way, who can kind of be your eyes and ears to exactly. the outside. Exactly.
1: To be able to be uh, um, in seclusion, uh, which gave more uh, higher status. They had to have slaves, and, and they had to have uh, f- uh, women slaves.
0: Enslaved courtesans in the Abbasid courts had been, has been a subject of historical interest, partly because we have a number of historical sources that talk about them. Their proximity to powerful men and women, and their participation in elite circles, meant that they at least showed up in the sources. But what can historians do to recover the voices of those who are barely mentioned in the sources? Those individuals who were of such little interest to scholarly and literary elite that they make scant mention of them. I talk next to Lori Silvers to think about the limits of historical methods and the rich space opened up for recovering such voices at the borders of history and fiction.
2: The characters came out of my research uh, in, in in a general form. So I worked on, when I was an academic, I worked on early Sufism uh, and early Islam, early, early mystic piety. Uh, but in order to do that work, I had to do a lot of social history because the people that I was focusing on were not elite members of society. Uh, there was not a lot of information about them. There wasn't uh, much about their lives or experience. So I'm I'm dealing with with women in the stories, uh, non-elite people uh, in these stories, and needed to do wide-ranging social history research in order to know better about who they are and be able to make decisions uh, about what their what these sayings that are attributed to them might mean what the behaviors described about them might mean and this started to give me a sense of of the world around these characters in a way that i would not have had i done sort of the more typical research on sufism which is very textually oriented and focused uh, on the immediate meaning the close the close meanings of the words in the text i wanted to explore those meanings within the context of the worlds in which they were given but specifically because you know, I had to look and see what might be behind them, given that the stories that I'm getting are stories that are told by elite men about non-elite people. Uh, and so what were they getting at in telling these stories? You have to sift through so much meaning in, in, uh, in these accounts to get at what might be the historical experience of the people uh, behind them. Uh, so the, the, the books, the series really started out of the necessary imagination that I had to cultivate in order to do this kind of academic work. Uh, so when I stopped being an academic and sort of moved on to working on fiction, I continued asking those questions about the people and place and time. But I started asking questions in the context of, you know, what if what would have become of this person or that person. They were outside the, the, the realms of what I could know as a historian. And I found that I was able to say academic things, make academic claims that were rooted uh, in good historical research, but through people and in a, in a, in a place that, uh, that, that I couldn't uh, that, that I couldn't focus on historically in my in my historical research beyond the realm of what would be acceptable at a you know academic conference or in you know in an, in an academic article and so it gave me this sort of freedom to say all the things that I had been wanting to say so so I've got a lot of main characters but they're all they all begin the story begins centered on uh Zaytuna and Teen's mother so Zaytuna and Teen are twins Uh, born to uh, a woman who is a wandering saint. And so she's based on um, initially on on, uh, Shawana, who is a, a, a saint of African descent in the early period. And and on some of the stories that are passed on by the moon uh, and others of these women who would wander the countryside in, uh, you know, in just wool garments in ecstasy and in love with God. And I had always wondered what happened to these women, you know, Mm. what was life like for them? And so, uh, you know, there's a wonderful story about a, a, a black saint who is a shepherd who is out you know is 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 out with her sheep and this this man approaches her because he's had a dream about her that she is his wife in paradise and so of course he feels like he has the right to go find her right right you know i mean Let's just say that, so that he has the right to go find that he has rights over her, right? so the first thing right. we encounter in this story is his expectation that he has rights over her because he just sort of arrives at her, he goes searching for her, and he finds her, and you know she's just like, buddy, i, I you know I don't want any of this but but one of the things that that we see is that she has. Uh, either uh, that she has a garment on which it is embroidered not for buying or selling, uh, which Mm. is basically not for sale. And so what are we to think of this, right? Now I had actually heard accounts of this in conversation with other people who study Sufism, that this is an account of her, uh, her rejection of materiality. Mm. And I thought, well, you know, if we're looking at social history, let's look at the wider context, which is that she may have been enslaved and freed. um, And, and also that there may also be, there, there was at the time, the possibility of being abducted off the road and sold into slavery. So people did just abduct people off the road and then sell them into slavery. And Muslims, it didn't matter. And, and so, you know, she's, so to me, I read that within the context of her of her social situation. Now, what else would it have been like for her to be alone? Any woman alone on the road was going to be raped. This is, you know, I don't want to say may. I, it, it feels right. like a certainty. Um, right. And so he seems to be addressing that reality when he approaches her and he says, and he sees, um, wolves sitting with the sheep. Now I'd also mm. heard, you know, he's surprised at this. And so he now I'd also heard accounts of this being like, oh, it's sort of lions lying down with the lamb, that kind of thing. And and he says, This is so shocking, the wolves are are with the sheep. And mm. she says to him very sharply, I fixed what be what's between me and God. Mm. And so the wolves are, are are with the sheep. Now he's from my reading of it, he's telling the story in order to affirm to readers or listeners of the story that she has not been sexually compromised through rape, right? Because it would mm. be perceived as a sexual compromise. It wouldn't be perceived as a violent assault. Um, and that he's saying she's been protected by God from this. Right. And I'm reading her saying, I, you know, I'm, I'm protected by God within myself, that she understands her, this experience of her life with God, uh, but not that she has been actually materially protected by God from Hmm. it. Um, Now, that's not really something I could say in an academic article, right? Right. I do venture uh, as far as I can in my my, uh, chapter in the Cambridge Companion to Sufism. Uh, As far as I can, historically, I venture to to argue these things there. But... um, you know but i can actually bring out this experience in fiction and so i really wanted to talk about the people who were the most vulnerable within uh, within the early sufi community the early mystic and pious communities i wanted to to talk about these people the most vulnerable and i wanted to uh talk about what their their lives would have been like i think so often we look at the past when we think about female saints we see rabia Ladawia. and and as a and as a friend of mine said recently you know like poor poor rabia she's doing a lot of work for for all the rest of the female right. <laughs> you know, she's having to carry them all right and, and so and 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 i thought and i and i and i thought i would like to bring these other women forward and I'd like to bring them into the story, and I'd like to bring their their history into the story. And so I decided to make the mother uh, this woman of African descent who who wandered and who had these experiences and who was not hoping to have children uh, because she wanted to live her life in ecstasy with God mm-hmm. and, uh, and becomes pregnant through a, a violent act, and God delivers her to her, these, these twins. And now she has to uh, understand who she is as a pious and mystic woman and what her relationship with God is with, with respect to this.
0: Um, I mean, I really appreciate you, you know, the way that you're describing both the limits of historical work in terms of what it allows us uh, to build as a picture or an imagination of, uh, you know, of the past, but also of that very close relationship between history and fiction, right? In some sense, the historian is doing, you know, precisely that work of trying to, you know, read some of these sources, put pieces together and imagine, you know, what things might have been like or imagine what the life of, you know, X character have might have been like, um, but then there are, you know, certain kind of ideas about, you know, what history is and what history does and in some ways also limits your imagination. And so fiction is such a a great way to, you know, to be able to move in that direction and to, you know, build precisely what you're talking about, build this imagination of a world that for a lot of readers um, is so valuable because so much of what we understand of who we are, how we act in the world, uh, you know, the histories that we you know, bring with us as we act in the world is really built on stories. And and, you know, so for to see you kind of doing that work, I feel like, you know, I I love that when I read um when I read The Lover. And part of what I also love about the the picture that you give us of these scholarly circles, uh, you know, that Mustafa is circulating in is is also because it gives us this picture of the writers of these texts that we do read, right? It gives us some kind of imagination of who they might've been because, you know, like you're saying, part of the challenge is that pretty much all the historical sources that we have are written by people who are elite in some way or the other. Uh, and, 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 and we tend to read them largely as the kind of text, right? That we sort of relate to the text and don't think too much about, you know who are the people who are writing these what are the circles that they're a part of what were their lived experiences that kind of brought them to writing these texts in the way in the way that they did um you know i mean it's it's so common to have these texts where you have religious scholars railing against you know the 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 public and how they don't listen to them how they don't follow what you know what they say um and you know it it, it took me a while to kind of Read the stuff not as a reflection on the public, but also a reflection on what the scholar hopes his position would be vis-à-vis the the public and the authority that he would carry. That he doesn't, that then brings him to writing the text in, in the way that he does. So, you know, I really love that, you know, bit of the way in which you explore these, uh, you know, these scholarly networks and scholarly circles because it 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 gives us, you know, it brings these people alive. Uh, which gives us a uh, you know a, a different lens by which we can read some of these uh, you know textual sources that we deal with.
2: thank you. and I, you know, and one of the things I really appreciate when people do that in scholarship, like Sarah Abduldel Latif has been looking uh, specifically at uh, Kosheri in his context and and um, uh, Martin Noyan did this as well, but looking at the at his particular context and but Sarah's like why why were certain people left out of Kosheri's Rasala? Right. what was going on was clolichety a misogynist you know I mean is that right. just why uh, all the women are being left out because somebody's a misogynist and it's right. like, well, but but really but what was going on with him I mean his, his daughter and his wife were uh, esteemed hadith scholars uh, you know what was what was going what was going on there and uh, and she really sort of unpacks the social history and Martin does as well and her work is sort of growing out of Martin's work um, but she's unpacking it in this gendered way of 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 looking at at why uh, the kinds of pressures that he was under that women would be left out. And it's similar to why he would be very reticent to, uh, you know, decide Halaj as well. You know, people don't realize how dangerous a figure Halaj was. Uh, back in the day, people forget that that even you know sort of quoting women in a particular way could could bring down on your head uh, a lot of negativity that you don't need. And and uh, Cacheté was in this in this place where there was actual violence going on and which his life right. threatened. So so it's like we have to think of all these different ways. But but the problem is right. We, we now we understand that about you know about Cacheté that there's this you know, that there's this multitude of reasons why women are left out of the resella uh in general um and then how we look at the resella as what sufism should be and women are absent and and so you know we we look back at everybody you know when i was first sort of getting into sufism oh look at this this is this is the book that will tell you everything you need to know about sufism and i wasn't there right and if I was there, then I had to be and Like, well, that's not going to happen, right? So, yeah. so how you know? So how do we do that? I mean, how do we, how do we, how do we see ourselves in this history? So I think sort of bringing those aspects out, where we're looking at the complicated natures of the people who are writing these texts, gives us an even broader sense of, of, uh, of, of why certain people are there and and people who are not there, and what their, uh, what their their inclinations. Uh, were and in a lot of cases, you know, Cusseti is a, a nice example, but there are examples of people who are leaving women out and leaving the experiences of others out. Um, and I think you you got at this. I was listening to your interview with uh, with Myrn. You know that they're uh, that they're leaving these things out in order to preserve their own power. Uh, and making sure that certain rights of theirs are preserved in certain ways, and to uh, articulate power over others in the way that the stories are told. So, you know, I hoped in, in writing this that I could unravel some of that within the story. And, and, and fiction, again, has this power to, to inhabit the imagination uh, and to reach people that, you know, you know, as much as we love our work as historians, I mean, who, how much of it actually gets read? and 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 translate it out on a popular you know on a, on a, at a popular level,
0: right, yeah, and I often find that it you know it's also um ideas that you know we might have individually or as a field about what constitutes um historical uh evidence and his, you know it, it isn't itself so limiting, I mean like some of the work that I've done on on women jurists, for example, you know, there's like snippets that we get from them, about them from, you know, in biographical dictionaries um, and, and, and not much more. And so, you know, to a certain extent, you can kind of go into that time period, try to recreate the social history of uh, you know, the city that they lived in uh, you know, their, their kind of, you know, journey of moving from one place to the other, who are people they're coming into contact with that maybe we know a little bit more about, but at some level, you know, you, th- you get stuck if you can't bring a kind of imagination and uh, you know an ability to move beyond just what the sources are telling you, but recreating or reimagining that person, their you know their interactions with others, uh, you know that 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 goes that that works with that historical material, but then sort of shifts beyond it.
2: Yeah, and we're and we're taught to not try to inhabit. Them. You know, we're, we're taught to not imagine them as people, uh, somebody that we could have known and asked questions of. Um, and that if we do that, we've, we've stepped, you know, we've stepped beyond a, a realm of acceptability. But right. at some level, you do have to imagine them as people, you do have to imagine that they are people who get up in the morning, who maybe are irritated because you know for for whatever reason because they've got to deal with something uh, that they you know they're happy, they're sad, they you know their their child does something that worries them, and we have all these we have all this information in the text that they are people who got up in the morning and were irritated with their children, right. or, you know we, it's there, uh, but we somehow. I think my, my, I don't, not everybody, right? But there is this, at least, you know, I always got the sense that I wasn't supposed to be looking at Mike. those things. I wasn't supposed to be looking at these, at the, at the humane elements of the text and, and, and thinking about, about that. What are these, what are these things that are the sort of the texture, the, the deep texture of our humanity uh, in these texts that make them much more complicated, much more disturbing, much more beautiful, uh, right by, by by seeing the human complexity that's there yeah we, we're not allowed to do that and if you do that you've gone too far um and what's interesting to me is that is that the people who sort of want to look away from that complexity or mute that complexity in the you know all in the name of doing good history um you know are actually doing bad history in a way right and and yet and yet they're setting the standards of what can be said and and I think we have to say outright right which is not not a complicated thing to say, um, but that they're they're doing work that does violence to the past and does right. violence to the non-elites. I want to say they do violence to the elites as well because they're not seeing them as as full human beings. But right. they're also but they're but they're more importantly doing violence to those who who are non-elite.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode as we discuss the challenges faced by historians in recovering the voices of the marginalized and the silenced in historical sources, as well as the possibilities opened up when we venture into fiction. Stay tuned for our next episode on local traditions of Islamic law.